Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. And then the ultimate test of whether you're doing things right or wrong is whether your profits are going up or down. So, I mean, productivity measurement is obviously useful for micromanagement. Well, should I move to a four-day work week or should I not? Should I have more people working from home or less? If you can measure productivity directly, well, great. That gives you an answer immediately. I'm Danielle Smith. Welcome to another episode of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This week, we speak with Professor Steve Globerman, who's a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. He has done a lot of work in recent years on the idea of moving down to a four-day work week, which I know probably sounds very enticing to most people, but how can it be implemented? Can it be implemented without reducing your level of pay? He joins us now to talk about it. Professor Globerman, thanks so much for being with me today. You're welcome. Tell me where the notion of this four-day work week comes from, because oftentimes you'll hear union leaders taking credit for all of the advancements that we see in workplace conditions. So does this already exist somewhere around the world? And so there's a pressure among labor leaders to start talking about this in Canada, or, or is it driven by something else? It, it The short answer is yes, it does exist. There have been experiences. I'll call them experiments, uh, really beta tests of four-day work week in a number of countries, uh, Finland, Sweden, for example, um, England, um, where the the uh, there there's really been an, uh, a trial of what happens to workplace practices, productivity when you move to a four-day week. I mean, surveys of of employees tell you that people obviously would they like to work fewer hours. And in particular, they would like to have a three-day weekend. I mean, that would be the, the preferential way of moving to a four-day week. So the question is, um, what happens to, to the output of, of the private sector and, and indeed the government sector if you do move to that four-day work weekend? And there have been experiments going on. I want to talk about making sure that we're all on the same page talking about the terms because my my husband used to be a, a manager in um, a workplace that was a you know 24 hour a day essentially seven day a, a week newsroom so he couldn't go down to a four day a week work week but he did put in four days and three days so the crew that worked four days worked 10 hour shifts the crew that worked three days worked 12 or 13 hour shifts it was still the same amount of hours but it was crammed into fewer days and so is that a model that you have considered um well it, it's certainly a model to consider but the model that we really focused on was literally a four-day week where you work eight hours, four days a week, as opposed to five days a week. So in other words, we're reducing the amount of workload um, for the average worker by 20%. Um, uh, that, that's the, it, it seems to me that in the best of all worlds, that's what employees would like, not just working more hours in fewer days, but literally working fewer hours. What's the magic about a 40 hour 
five day a week work week. Because when you think about the development of industrial economies, you're moving away from an agriculture-based society, which is, I don't know, I guess I look at that as really far more seasonal, where you're just going completely full out for probably 18-hour days during the summer, and then there's the chores, but a lesser amount of, of work during the winter, typically. But where did this magic of 40 hours and five days a week come from? Well, it, 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 com it comes from, it came from, and, and continues to be a function of... Uh, bargaining between employers and employees. I mean, from the perspective of the employer, what the employer wants is to maximize profits. And that means using labor efficiently. From the perspective of employees, it's maximizing the combination of income and leisure time. And uh, in point of fact, if you really do careful surveys, my guess is that a lot of people are not working five days a week. Uh, they're not working 40 hours a week. Some are working 50, some are working 30. There's all kinds of uh, arrangements out there in the, in the, in the, in the workplace. Um, so uh, I guess underneath your question is, is there a compelling economic logic for that arrangement? And uh, I guess as an economist who believes markets work pretty well, uh, I would say, it probably has worked pretty well, but I think what we're seeing now is a real challenge to that uh, notion. And so now you have businesses experimenting with all kinds of arrangements with workers. I guess the question I would have, and I don't know, maybe every time I have a conversation with a professor, it feels like there's always other disciplines we need to pull in to get the full picture. And I'm wondering if there's a discipline that tells you what is the optimal number of hours a person can work in a day and still be effective? Because that is, I guess, one of the big questions that we have. I remember when I was on radio, basically, you know, three hours of broadcast time was about the most you could expect out of somebody. Mm -hmm. In the teaching profession, I think it's five hours of teaching time. So there, there must be some sort of guide that we can have about what is, because if we're going to be talking about productivity, and why you could potentially increase productivity, even though you're having fewer hours. I'm wondering if there's other disciplines that can be brought to bear in discussing how much productive time can each person put in a day before they start deteriorating in their ability. Uh, there, there certainly is. I mean, there are psychologists who are working on this. There are operations research people who are working on this. Um, and, and, and your point is exactly right. Um, there is there is no uniform magic number of hours. It, it varies with, it varies with the activities that you're doing. It varies with the organizational structure. Um, so, so where I come down on this is that ex ante, I don't think anyone can say, well, here's the magic number, even for a given profession. Uh, some doctors can work longer hours than others. Uh, some professors can teach more than others. Um, it, it's really the that's the that's one of the main jobs of management is to figure out how to use their workforce more effectively. The one rule of thumb that I think is coming through in the studies, at least the studies that I've seen, is that it, you need to use automation intelligently to assist workers in in being more flexible, just as we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we, we couldn't have done this 10 years ago the way we're doing it now. Um, well, it, 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 technological change is the marriage partner to a flexible 
workplace and and that puts the emphasis again on management to figure out what technology is particularly appropriate for the jobs that the organization needs done. So you're going to have to give us some grounding in economic theory as we move into discussing whether you can increase or decrease productivity by by moving the number of hours down. Because there's a big pressure now, as you've written about, for um, now that people have worked from home uh, over the past 18 months or had some kind of hybrid, people want to retain that. And I'm interested in knowing what the what the literature says about whether or not it's been working. But But talk to me first about this work versus leisure trade-off. I remember those graphs when I was in, when I was in my economics program. And, but you, you, I don't know if it's a, a perfect science because as you've pointed out, there are a lot of people who get joy out of doing work and will do a lot of work in their spare hours. There's others who just can't wait to punch the clock out so that they can go and, and get onto kids' activities and, and doing some of their hobbies. So what do we know about that, about that trade-off? What, what does, the, what does the, the, the literature tell us? Well, the literature tells us that for most workers, certainly there's a um, there is a trade-off. It's not both are both are good. Give me more of both. <laughs> uh, I, I think I think the literature suggests that the supply curve of labor is indeed upward sloping. That is, if you want people to work more, all other things the same, you have to pay them more. Um, and uh, uh, obviously, there are people who. And I'm one of them who who thinks work is leisure. But but I, I, I don't think I'm representative of, of the Canadian workforce in any way, shape or form. So, no, I, I think the trade-off is there. I mean, obviously, it's more or less steep for different people, but it's it's there in the aggregate. Okay, then let's talk about productivity, because this is a bit of a challenge. It, it's easy to talk about and understand productivity when you have something that you can measure, like you can measure how many haircuts a salon stylist can do. You can measure how many restaurant meals a server can serve. You can measure how many widgets a person can produce, but not all jobs are like that. It seems to me almost like we're narrowing our discussion about productivity to, 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 uh, or narrowing the discussion about a four-day week, week, work week to talk about those professions where you can't really very easily measure productivity. I think government office jobs, I think uh, downtown office tower jobs. And, I, and so I'm trying to get you to connect how you, um, how you measure productivity, productivity generally, uh, economy-wide, and then we'll try to take it down to individual sectors. Right. Well, um, the, the, the classic measurement of productivity is is the real output that is if you adjust for inflation price increases real output divided by labor hours and you're quite right in some occupations it's it's easy to measure because the output is is either tangible or it's discrete it's number of meals number of plates you've carried to a table so what do you do about occupations where, first of all, the output may be intangible, like creating research. Um, and, and, and even more complicated, what about if the output is produced by a team? Um, it's not any one individual's effort per se, it's the effort of a group of people working together. Um, it's hard to do. Um, and, and it, I guess the, 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 the hard answer to the question would be, um, 
whoever is in charge, whoever has the responsibility of, of actually making sure that output is produced is going to find some metric, some, some surrogate measure. It might be profitability, for example. In some companies, it might be revenue uh, created. Um, in the government area, by the way, there, there, um, there are um, ongoing, uh, hopefully, successful efforts to try and create measures uh, of output um, um, by task accomplishment. So for example, a sanitation department uh, inspecting um, restaurants. Um, okay, well, uh, one way you can measure productivity is how many restaurants did you inspect per hour of work? But of course, you can have bad inspectors and good inspectors. So then the metric might be well, how many, um, how many restaurants did you identify that created a health hazard per hour of work? Um, so, you know, Danielle, there's no, there's no easy answer to that question. You really, again, I'm back to this, this notion that the job of management is to deal with that issue, to try and get as close as possible in measuring output to what matters to the organization or the department. If it's a health and safety department, find a measure that's related to public health and safety. Um, you know, if it's a police department, uh, find a measure that's related to crime prevention. Uh, how, uh, so, you know, it's 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 really a heterogeneous um, measurement exercise. So talk to me a bit about the research area that you're in, because I think there are a lot of brain jobs and I don't know if academic research is best measured in terms of how many papers do you put out, how many pages of pay, uh, are each of those papers, or even how many hours did you spend on that particular project. And that may get us um, our heads around a bit of that intangibility because there's a creative aspect in a lot of people's jobs, a soap time and think time aspect. And mm -hmm. sometimes you can have your magnum opus after 10 years of doing all of your research. And right. so I'm wondering if there's a way for us to be thinking of productivity in that line of work, because I think there's a lot more jobs that are like that. Yeah, there are. And, and, and that's the, uh, the kind of the quintessential problem um, is uh, measuring knowledge output. And, and so again, um, what people have to fall back on are proxy measures. So for example, um, in the area of, of knowledge creation, uh, one standard measure of output is patenting. How many patents were created? Um, if, you, if you have a research team, if you're Bell Canada and you have a research team that's meant to produce knowledge about telecommunications. Well, how many patents did this group create for the hours of work that they did? That's one example. Another, another way that, uh, for example, a, a company, uh, oh, like um, Shopify or some other technology company is, is, is how many new products were introduced on the network per hour of work? Um, again, I, I'd love to be able to give you one single simple metric that knowledge companies could use to measure the output of their workers doesn't exist as far as I know. Um, you have to, again, try and find proxies that are as close as possible to the goal that you have for the organization. So Bell Canada wants to find new ways of 
carrying telephone and communications traffic and probably they're going to patent a lot of what they do or copyright it. So copyrights per hour of work in software companies might be a measure of output. You know, what's interesting about what you're saying is that some jobs you'd be able to see immediately, whether going down to four days a week, eight hours a day is having an is having an impact because you can see you've produced X amount of goods or you've done X amount of service. You can see immediately. But the the knowledge jobs, you almost have to look at it on a year over year basis. And then you wouldn't know whether or not the the switch worked until until after the fact. So it's I think it creates a little bit of a leap of faith that that businesses are going to to have to hope that if they make the change, they're going to see a productivity improvement. Is there some way we can improve on hope though? Like what 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 have you would you be looking to to make the argument that you can see productivity improvements even if you do see a, re a reduction in hours? Well, yeah, I, I think I think in the last analysis, in the final analysis for a for-profit organization, I mean, the ultimate test of whether you're doing things right or wrong is whether your profits are going up or down. So, I mean, productivity measurement is obviously useful for micromanagement, you know, it, exactly in this case, well, should I move to a four-day work week or should I not? Should I have more people working from home or less? If you can measure productivity directly, well, great. That gives you an answer immediately. But if, if, if in the end, at the end of the day, your test of whether you're managing your organization successfully is are you increasing your profitability? And if you're not, then you're going to have to go into the micro details. What am I doing today that I wasn't doing yesterday or that I was doing yesterday, but not doing today so that my profits are lower because that, that's a signal that I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing or I'm not doing something I should be doing. So, you know, at the end, it's really about profit. Um, that's your ultimate guide as to whether you're doing it right or wrong, quote unquote. A um, little harder for public sector and nonprofit organizations, right? But they have an objective function, too. I mean, don't don't get me talking about government because you, you might not want to get me going there. But, but a nonprofit has objective functions, contributions. Are we getting more contributions or less contributions? And if we're getting less, why is it? Is it because our our solicitors of people are, who are working for us, they're working from home and that doesn't seem to be as effective as going out and meeting potential donors? I mean, it's an iterative process by which management learns it's it's not it's not a blackboard exercise you know um and i'm going to get you talking about government because that's always my biggest frustration is that the two measures that you've just put on the table don't exist in government so you don't have a profit in fact if there is at the end of the year something that approaches a surplus you've heard the story of march madness where uh the civil servants will run out and spend it so that they don't get their 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 uh allocation reduced the following year and then on the issue of do we get more dollars well that's more of a lobbying exercise internally as opposed to taxpayers saying golly gee i sure like the work that the energy department's doing i'm just going to give them a little bit more so i can see how prof how, how you can talk about productivity in the private sector and in the nonprofit sector but it is it is a tough nut to crack in the in the government sector in a lot of positions and i i suspect i'm going to put this to you and maybe you can correct me if i'm wrong 
we talk about Canada having a productivity problem. And I'm wondering if it's a productivity problem in the private sector, or if it's just that we've got a large government sector. And that's the, the reason why our productivity numbers uh, tend to be worse relative to our biggest com competitor in the US. So, so explain to us a bit of the productivity problem that we that we face in Canada. Well, it's a little bit of both, Danielle. It's, it's, it's both the fact that um, Canada has a larger public sector. Let me, let me just make the comparison to the U.S. because that's, I guess, most relevant in, in the context of, of, of Canada's economic relations, our largest trading partner, our, our biggest capital market linkages. Um, if you have a larger government sector, the evidence suggests that you're going to have lower rates of productivity growth because the public sector is less productive than the private sector. And um, um, I had an op-ed uh, a while back that um, that put some numbers forward that the rate of growth of productivity in the in the private service sector was about twice as fast as in the government service sector over the last 10 to 15 years in Canada. Okay, so. Um, so, so, so if Canadians want a larger government as a share of the economy, it's not because they're, they want faster productivity growth, but that's not going to be the outcome of that political decision. Um, and we can get back to why Canadians are not more aggressive in demanding <laughs> better efficiency from government, but that's a question we can leave for the moment. The other point is government has an indirect effect on productivity in the private sector. As you know, um, I've done a bunch of studies for the Fraser Institute on capital investment and the lagging rate of capital investment in the private sector in Canada relative to the US and even some European countries. Well, what's the reason for that? Um, we're, we're arguing, we have argued that Canada has higher tax rates than the US at least till recently. <laughs> uh, and, and that discourages investment, particularly higher capital gains taxes. Um, Canada has more regulations per, if you want to think about it, per dollar of private sector output than the US does. That doesn't encourage capital investment. Capital investment is really the basis for productivity growth. And if you have lagging rates of investment, you shouldn't expect to be the leader of the pack in productivity growth. So, you know, directly and indirectly, a, a large and interventionist government is, is probably going to hurt your productivity growth. Talk to me a little more about capital investment, because I, I've often been struck when I do travel to the U.S., I feel like they're miles behind us on, on technology in some cases, because I, I was just recently down in Phoenix, and I paid for a meal at a restaurant and they took my card away and ran it through and came back with a pen and paper for me to sign off on. I thought, holy Dinah, I haven't seen that in Canada for, for probably five or, or 10 years. And you often would find that as well when you when you went to, um, uh, to, to taxis, for instance, some of them would still use the old slider when it came to, to MasterCard and Visa. So I've been sort of left with the impression that when it comes to adopting the IT, the, the technology solutions that Canada is doing pretty well, but the numbers don't lie. I mean, if you're looking at numbers and we don't have the same capital investment, where is the nature of the problem? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I too notice uh, when, when I when I do 
credit card or debit card transactions in Canada, um, at least until recently, uh, yeah, the 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 um, that they'll bring you the, uh, the 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 chip reader right to your table, and or it's a swipe machine. That's changing, by the way. I mean, and and there's some complicated reasons for that in the U.S. If you take a more a broader view of IT, there's absolutely no question, and it's in the productivity data, and it's in the adoption of IT data. Uh, the U.S. is is a leader in. Um, until recently, um, in, in in the actual application of IT business applications, not necessarily consumer applications, but business applications, um, and uh, in fact, that's the main reason for productivity growth in the U.S. being uh, faster than in Canada. It's the growth in the, I'll call it the um, information communication sector. It's not just computers. It's it's the entire kind of network the intelligent network that uh manufacturers use in the u.s um, i see what you're saying because i i guess as you're talking i'm thinking of walmart having engineered a behind the scenes business to business automated system and i suspect that there's exactly. a lot that is that one step removed the business to business functions that the americans must be investing more in than we are even if the front end experience from a consumer point of view doesn't make it entirely obvious but exactly. what would be the the reasons why American companies would invest more so in that and Canadian companies wouldn't. It's, it seems to me the argument should be identical, that if you can put these new investments in place, you have greater productivity of your staff, you earn more profit. It should be it should be self-rewarding. And um, so why isn't it? Because, well, it, the reason, well, two reasons that I would give you. Number one is no investment is riskless. I mean, anytime you change what your organization does, you're in, you're accepting risk of failure, in this case, losing money. You have to be rewarded for that. And if you have a capital gains tax rate that's, let's, let's just say, 40% as opposed to 20%, well, then a risky investment in the first environment with the 40% capital gains tax rate is less attractive than in the 20%. Uh, capital gains tax rate. Um, if you have to deal with a bunch of regulations in order to do what you need to do to get your productivity to grow, well, at some point it may not pay. Yeah, yeah, sure, you'd be more efficient, but all of the effort you have to put in to have a legal right to do what you want to do might make it unprofitable. Uh, so, uh, so, so that's that's the, that's back to the point we were talking about earlier that the the tax structure is very important in terms of encouraging investment precisely because people have to be rewarded for taking risks and nothing is riskless the other the other aspect of of canada's investment profile relative to the us and this has been true certainly very true in the last 5 to 10 years is much more investment in Canada going into the residential housing sector and less into the corporate sector. Um, the um, the share of total capital investment in, in the residential sector, I'm talking about housing, uh, residential housing is higher in Canada by, you know, a factor of, I think I might, I can't remember exactly, but we're talking about 30% higher than in the U.S. Well, that's capital, you know, that's literally 
both financial capital and resources, labor, construction workers, equipment, machine, that's going into producing housing, not producing server networks for, for B2B commerce. So um, again, this is, uh, this is my speculation now. I wanna, I wanna emphasize this because I haven't done a study of this, but my speculation is that the bias in the tax system combined with really what amounts to um, a, a, an active effort on the part of the government to, to encourage investment in housing, partly through encouraging immigration, but, but also just encouraging people to buy housing, uh, in Canada has created, um, if you will, uh, in my view, uh, a, a misallocation of capital, a lot more going to an area which is probably yielding lower productivity gains than business equipment, IT, um, in intellectual capital, that kind of thing. It's so fascinating you should say that because there's there's two things I want to I want to pose to you and again we're all speculating here but I think you've touched on something really important because I have both a, a business and a home and I'm struck by the fact that I can get a home mortgage for two to three percent but a tiny loan for my corporation was seven point nine five percent so mm -hmm. you're talking two to three times the interest rate and I look at this for small business investment and I think gosh no wonder people aren't interested in investing right. in the business sector and I don't I don't know should we be taking a closer look there I, I don't I, I must tell you with the the amount of competition and choice that there is in the banking system in the US, it might be harder to, to try to pin down when you only have six banks here that are kind of setting the trend. It's, it strikes me that it, it might be a little more difficult to understand if that's where the nature of the problem is. That would be one. The other area is I, I often watch the HGTV shows and I'm, I'm always mystified about how low the cost to buy houses is in, in the United States. And, and I don't know if that's because of the different tax policies they have, the different capital gains policies, the, um, the way that you can have mortgage interest write off, if that ends up creating a, a different type of incentive, because I, I, I think you've also touched on something important that I think people buy houses in certain, certain markets for speculation, because Vancouver, Toronto, holy cow, if you bought something there in the last 10 years, you've been doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. And that again, could skew some of those decisions. And so I'm curious how you would bundle all that together. And if there's any policy prescriptions that would come out of it. Well, um, just as a, as an aside, and to build on on your observation about housing costs, um, we did a study. Um, it, the Fraser Institute did. I was involved with it, where we looked at uh, housing affordability, which is basically how much people have to pay for shelter uh, relative to household income. And Canadian cities are uh, much more expensive, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, than than U.S. cities when you try and standardize for size of city and that kind of thing it's striking so the answer the, the, the obvious question then becomes why is this <laughs> what, what explains this and then what are the consequences of it uh, what explains it in part we think is um, um regulation again mm -hmm. um as you know very well um um it's 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 very expensive to get all of the regulatory approval to build um, a, a multifamily apartment unit mm -hmm. almost anywhere in Canada, but but particularly in in Toronto and and Vancouver, the the lower mainland, the places where prices have really 
skyrocketed. That's a problem. The second, the second issue is there's no capital gains tax on owner-occupied housing. There is on every other kind of risky investment you might make. Well, okay, so the average person might say, if I've got a half a million dollars to invest, do I want to put it into equities where I'm going to pay capital gains if I'm, if I'm right? Uh, or do I want to put it into a house where I can live? And if I make capital gains, I don't pay any taxes on it. Um, mm. So, uh, and there, there is a capital gains tax in the U.S. You, you have a $500,000 exemption. That is the first $500,000 of capital gains is tax exempt. After that, you're paying the normal capital gains tax. I think that's relevant. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I certainly think it's worth looking into. I mean, why do we want to privilege investing in housing rather than investing in businesses? Because people could take their money and, and, and invest in a business, which and <laughs> businesses, obviously, as, as your business does, you need capital to, to expand. Well, we, we in Canada are, are basically saying, look, if you're indifferent on the margin, it's always better to invest in more housing than in businesses. Um, wow. And now you've created a political problem because it's the occupants of the housing that vote, <laughs> not the, and the occupants of businesses, they vote as residents, but they certainly don't get an extra vote. So that creates almost a structural problem to overcome. And if we can't change the tax policy there, is there some way that we can then compensate by creating a more attractive investment climate? Sounds to me like reducing regulation is key, mm -hmm. perhaps reducing the capital gains or trying to find some parity um, so that you can level the playing field there as well. Uh, is there, because I, I think this is compelling that I think what you're telling me is that if we could only crack this nut of productivity improvement in businesses, then we all can work less. <laughs> and so there has to be some that 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 light at the end of the tunnel people can see. But how do you get there from here? So what are some other policies that we need to look at if we're going to improve productivity? Well, <laughs> um, back to the point we were talking about earlier, Danielle, and, and this is this is a trade off. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that. Uh, I mean, I have my own personal preferences, but obviously that's irrelevant for the purpose of our conversation. When you have 50% of the available inputs in the economy being used to produce government services, um, you have a productivity problem. Hmm. So, you know, if, if you want my most dramatic answer to how do we improve productivity, free up more resources for the private sector, shrink the government's position in the economy uh, because the private sector can use those resources more efficiently. Now, obviously, people listening to this can say, what you want us, no Medicare, uh, what, uh, no, uh, um, no unemployment insurance, what, no, you can name any government program and people will say, hey, wait a second, that's valuable. The point is, it is a trade-off. If, if you want to work 32 hours a week and get paid the same or more, you have to raise your productivity. If businesses are competing with government for skilled labor, even for financial capital, although <laughs> the Bank of Canada seems to be doing a nice job of financing governments, so maybe government doesn't have to compete anymore for capital, but they certainly still have to compete for labor and they have to compete for computers. 
by compete, I mean they have to bid them away from the private sector. And that means that you don't have those inputs working in the private sector where they would be more productive. So, so you know, here's the hard choice. Um, you want more government, you're going you're gonna to make it more difficult to get to a 32-day week because productivity growth in the private sector isn't going to be as fast. Okay. So then let's talk a, a, a bit more about some of the of the changes that you'd need to, you'd make and what kind of impact it has. Because I think we had a bit of a experiment in this last year about whether having stay at home work and perhaps lower number of, of days of, uh, of work in a week or lower number of hours of work in a week would have maintained the level of productivity. And I think I, I read one of your columns, you said the results are inconclusive. And tell me why they were inconclusive. What What is it the, with the limited amount of data that we have? What is it, the, the trend that you're seeing? Well, it, it's literally inconclusive in the sense that some studies say, well, oh, well, we went to a four-day week and uh, we were, our, our employees were as or more productive than they were before. And then some uh, cases where the conclusion was we were less productive. If we push to say, is there some pattern that we can see that that lets us infer why you'll get a good result in one case and a bad result in another case? I, I think the the answer I have to give you is I don't think we have enough information to to generalize. But if there is any generalization that seems reasonable, it's again back to this notion that um, where employers can use technology easily to interact with the employees, employment might be more flexible. You know, for example, um, at the Fraser Institute, um, very few people have been in the office for the last 18 months, 20 months. Um, and the reason that that's possible is because we can do a lot of our work online. It's the nature of the work we're doing that makes capital equipment very complementary in the restaurant business not as easy but they're doing it they're pushing to do it they're maybe not so much in the states but I, by the way i spend time everywhere and um i see a lot of robotics being introduced into restaurants where you do your own ordering and and uh you're paying all of it is automated someone finally produces the food but even that's being automated. There are robot chefs that are at work. Um, well, you know, if, if you have a robot chef, uh, well, then maybe the, the, the human chef can say, okay, well, I'll take a four day week and I'll work or maybe I'll work from home entirely and I'll learn a little programming and I'll program the chef. Uh, so, I mean, anything is possible um, the closer you are to the technology that's available that can complement labor. Let's then talk about the gloom that often accompanies, the kind of replacement that, that you just talked about. Because I, I would go back to President Barack Obama, and, and he warned about how technology was replacing jobs, and it was creating massive unemployment. And it, and it seemed to be true. I mean, if you look at the Rust Belt states and the high level of unemployment as manufacturing jobs were lost, I think we've got a similar dynamic happening in our manufacturing center in Ontario as well. So I think 
maybe be based on personal experience people have, they have a fearfulness of technology because they think that they don't think, oh, this is going to allow me to be more productive. So I'll be either able to get paid more or I'll, or, or I'll work less. They think I'm not going to work at all because my job will be gone. So right. what do you what do you actually see with that? And how do you overcome that argument and that concern? Yeah, well, first, um, it, it, it's it's useful to distinguish between what economists call the short run and the long run. And I know Keynes said in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, but but I think the long run in this context is, uh, you know, we're talking about a matter of years, not necessarily decades. Um, certainly in the short run, some jobs might be rendered non-economic, uneconomic. It, employers just can't justify hiring the worker to do what the worker is doing, given the availability of new technology. For most jobs, history says that's not how it works. For most jobs, automation, let's just call it automation because most technological change involves automation in one way or another. For most jobs, automation enables the worker to do different tasks so that, for example, um, a tax advisor um, can now use artificial intelligence to screen investments and to screen people's incomes to advise them as how best to invest and minimize their tax burden. Years ago, that would have been done by the tax uh, expert looking through all kinds of statutes and getting the tax code, you know, those big books that they would open up and have to flip to page 453 to figure out whether something was a legal deduction or not. That can all be done now, you know, by computer programs, right? So, so does that mean the tax expert is unemployable? No one wants to use the tax. No, it means the tax expert can spend more time talking about things that really matter to the person's life cycle planning. Do you have children? How much do you want to leave to your children? Uh, what charities do you want to fund? Let's let's figure out a way that you can fund the charity over time that, that doesn't interfere with your lifestyle. What I'm saying is that the technology for most workers, not obviously for all, but for most workers, it really it creates more degrees of freedom in terms of what they can do and they can scale up what they do to generally more complex, intangible types of activities, whereas the, the, the mundane stuff, is this a legal deduction or not? That's done by machine. Um, so, so, so that's one observation. But the second observation I want to make before we leave the topic, productivity growth, as we've talked about, is the way people become wealthier. It's the way the standard of living of a society increases. Well, when standards of living increase, when people have more disposable income, they buy more things. Mm -hmm. They create more demand for output. Well, someone's got to produce the output, and it's not going to be 100% done by robots or servers. I mean, someone, there are going to be human beings who are hired um, you know, uh, here's an example, and it's just one of many, but but maybe this makes it most obvious. Um, so we have we have COVID vaccines that are based on mRNA technology. A lot of that work is done by computers, right? I mean, 
they're doing it's artificial intelligence that's doing the background work to figure out you know what happens if you um change this particular the dna of this molecule or the rna of this molecule okay fine well oh now we've got these vaccines how many people have we hired to vaccinate how many doctors now are doing the task of advising their their patients about what vaccine they should get and when they get it it's not like all of a sudden we've got no one doing medicine because of this in fact we've got a lot more people involved in medicine um, than we did before because of this and that, that that's that's an example of of uh, i guess of how uh, not necessarily of how technology raises incomes um, and then creates jobs, but back to the issue of task changes. Um, would we have Tesla if we weren't as wealthy as we are? It's it's it, those are both good points, and and let me just draw one other one in because I think it's Im important to check premises because you could end up with counterproductive policy if your premises are wrong. So you look at Bill Gates, for instance, who I, I think has talked about the same kind of trend of technology replacing human work. And he was proposing a few years ago that we needed a robot tax um, as a way of generating revenue for government because if you're having all these unemployed people, not only would you need more social program to support them, is the, the the argument goes, but you also need to have a new source of government revenue. Mm -hmm. But from what I'm hearing you say, if you did impose a tax like that, then you would create further disincentive to invest in the machinery and equipment and IT that you need to improve productivity. So it would be counterproductive. Yes. In, in the context of what we've discussed, we've just discussed, yes. But let me, let me raise an interesting wrinkle to this argument about automation. Um, so um, there are some economists who argue that um, what's happening is um, uh, income is being redistributed to the, let, let me call it the investor class and away from the labor uh, class, um, that all of this productivity growth is great it's great for Jeff Bezos. It's great for Bill Gates. It's 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 great for people who are entrepreneurs and use the technology to create great businesses, which do make people wealthier. But on the margin, it makes the owners of the businesses more wealthy relative to the workers. So you have this redistribution of income, concentration of wealth. Um, we can argue about whether these these measures of wealth concentration are valid or not. They've got big problems, but, but let me get to the point. There are some people who are saying, let's not tax the robots because we, we want robots. They're going to make everyone more productive. But let's make sure that everyone can invest in companies that are going to be the leaders in creating these new businesses and new business models. And there are some economists in the States who are saying, you know, rather than giving welfare checks to people, why don't we give them shares of companies? I mean, obviously some people need cash to buy food and pay rent, but, but you know, all of the redistribution that goes on, maybe the better way to do this would be to give people the opportunity to invest, to buy shares in entrepreneurial companies like Alphabet or, or Shopify. Um, if if indeed that if indeed you're worrying about 
technology not eliminating jobs, but creating more income inequality, if, if that's your worry, then enable people, people being lower income people, to have the opportunity to invest the way higher income people do in these new businesses. That's a bit of a, that's an entirely different issue than the everyone's going to be out of work uh, issue. But but it may be, in fact, more relevant, in my view, as a policy issue. Well, and it's a lot more elegant than what I was thinking. I, I was thinking I needed to buy my own robot and send it off to work for me to go and generate the revenue and the income so I could stay at home. But I think yours would probably be a bit more practical. Let me ask one other question, though, because we've been talking about what it is that employees want. I'm curious about what employers want. And I there's just a, a story I heard in the last week that's kind of rattling around in my head about a, a fish plant on the East Coast. Some investors from the U.S. were going to come in and they wanted to start off by having two shifts and then they do three shifts and then they were year round. And then the, the crowd gasped and someone stood up and said, um, we're a seasonal workplace here. We don't work year round because we've got hunting to do and we've got uh, work on the, you know, we've got chores to do. And the investment never happened because the investors thought I needed to have a more steady workforce and I needed to have more workplace engagement. I needed more workers than the, the local community was able to provide. And it's sort of interesting if you look long run, short run, short run, uh, that was what the workers wanted. Long run, all the kids moved away to go elsewhere mm -hmm. for other opportunities. So it's an instructive um, case, I think, for a number of reasons. But it also tells me that in the end, uh, businesses are going to locate where they can find a workforce that is willing to match what it is that they need. And I'm wondering how uh, how, how these two get married together. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it has to be a match. Um, and uh, um, I think uh, we didn't touch on this point. I was uh, negligent in not raising it, but we, we actually talked a little bit about it earlier. Uh, employers are going to be challenged to find um, productive workers because of, in part, the demographics, which are becoming unfavorable as people leave the workforce through aging. Um, and... Um, and, and challenging to get people to move to the jobs, because if the jobs are in Toronto, you're going to have to pay people a lot of money to be able so they can afford to live in Toronto. So, yes, you're right. There, there is this this process and it's an innovative process where companies are now moving, trying out their business model in smaller cities and seeing if they can make it work in smaller cities. And I, I think the jury is out on that. Mm really frankly that just it just it's too new a phenomenon to really be able to say but 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 again it's it's back to the point of um you know ma it, that's management's job is, is to is to make that match work as productively as possible um the thing that we don't want and this gets us back to government we don't want government dictating to the ex extent they want to dictate um where companies can work, how they can hire, who they can hire, um, then then we're then we're gumming up that innovative process, and it's unlikely to end well if we do. What well, what I fear is that it would be the public sector unions, which would be the ones most advocating, 
most strongly for this move? Because I think we've already seen this, that they do have a shorter work week in a lot of those uh, employment areas. But the way they've dealt with that is not by increasing productivity, it's been by increasing the number of workers, which then cannibalizes, as we've talked about, the workforce in the private sector, which then leads to reduced productivity. So if that's not the way you get to a shorter work week, um, you, you talk about how the way to get there, and I think you started in 2018, is if we just increased our productivity 2% per year, by 2030, we'd be at a point where we could have the same level of income, but have shorter hours. And that's great when you take it on a, mic on a macro scale and you look out over the long run. But I'm kind of wondering how would these steps be taken at the micro level? Does a, a company just go 100% into a change to a four-day work week? Or do they slowly start saying, okay, well, every third Friday off, and then it's every second Friday off, and then it's every Friday off. I mean, do you do you see that it's likely to be an evolution? Is there anywhere we can look to see where it's been implemented? Do they go all at once? Or is it kind of a gradual change? I, the the short answer, Danielle, is I I think it's 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 not only evolutionary. It's, it's it's as I said before, it's it's organizational level stuff. Um, um, some of those experiments that I mentioned earlier were straightforward. Um, you work um, uh, one less hour a day. Uh, some of them were um, you'll work four days, but the fifth day you you take off. Um, it's 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 likely to be, uh, you know. Ultimately, I think what we're going to be looking at is a, is a whole range of new workplace arrangements. Some people will work from home all the time, some half time, some not at all. And again, um, I, you know, I think Friedrich Hayek's great insight was: no master planner can tell you what the best way is to do it, right? These are very local decisions, local in terms of the literally it's the individual business that something is going to work better than something else. And it's going to be different for another business. I think the only my, so I guess the short answer is I, I don't know that there there's a micro answer. I think the it's the macro answer. It's let the market work because there's a lot of work to be done and no one in Ottawa or Washington or anywhere knows what the right arrangement is. That's a well, trial and error process that has to be done in the marketplace by individual organizations. I, I, I love that note. We will end on that. But you're at the forefront of some pretty interesting research because you're going to get new data every year. I think when I talk to you, call it five years from now, we're going to have a very different conversation. Maybe we'll see a lot of those Perhaps. experiments playing out in practice. Perhaps. Thank you so much for your time today. Okay, thanks, Daniel. You bet. That was Steve Loberman, Senior Fellow with the Fraser Institute. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org. 